This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To start your free 14-day trial, visit shopify.com. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, SheFit talked about how they beat competition by focusing on doing just one thing better than everyone else. In today's episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that grew a subscription service from 500 to 50,000 customers. In this episode, you'll learn about the benefits of offering an annual subscription plan, how they use Facebook lookalike audiences to target their ads, and what is a churn rate and why it will be crazy at the beginning and stabilize over time. Today, I'm joined by Vincent Borzay from TryTheWorld.com. Try the World is a gourmet food subscription box from around the world and was started in 2014 and based out of New York, New York. Welcome, Vincent. Thank you so much for having me, Felix. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about um, the store, like I guess the subscription box and what kind of products are, are in them. I guess they change every month, but I guess the gist of it, what, is, what do you usually include in each box? Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for asking this. So basically, uh, every box is centered around a country and comes with... Uh, seven to eight gourmet products. So in there you'll find both uh, snacks, but also cooking elements, and you'll always have a beverage as well. And uh, uh, every box comes with a, a culture guide, what we call a culture guide, where you can find more information about each of the products. Uh, you can learn uh, a lot about the artisans that are making them, and you also have recipes that are recommended by the chef that uh, are curating the boxes. So for each of our boxes, we uh, collaborate with a celebrity chef. So for example, right now, uh, we're doing Portugal. Uh, and uh, the box has been curated by uh, Chef George Mendes, who has a Michelin star restaurant uh, in New York City. Uh, so in this guide, you have um, recipes made uh, by, uh, by the chef. And you also have like why, the reason why he picked all of these products. Yeah, I like the I like I really like the idea behind this um, this service. So how did you get started? Like, where did the idea come from? Yeah, sure. So, the two co-founders that uh, were both at uh, Columbia University uh, doing grad school kind of shared a passion for both food and travel. And uh, after doing an incubator at Google, uh, where they also looked a lot uh, at the subscription box model that was getting very popular uh, three years ago with. Uh, Companies such as Birchbox and Barkbox, they decided that they wanted to put kind of the, each country in a box. Uh, and when you're thinking about going to vacation to a country, uh, you're mostly thinking about experiencing the food mm. and the art. Uh, and it's obviously easier to put a gourmet product than a big painting in a box. So they basically chose the, the food angle. And uh, you also have to take into consideration that it's the, the second the online food is the second, growing, uh, second fastest growing uh, e-commerce after uh, fashion, so you had these these two trends uh, that uh, kind of converged to create this this unique product that uh, is try the world uh, that provides the best gourmet product from around the world uh, to your door, and uh, it's very important to to notice that ninety percent of the product that we put in our boxes are not available yet in the U.S. So it's really about 
finding the local artists and what the local really eats, uh, and and really uh, working with with this unique producers to bring their amazing product in the U.S. Yeah, this is not a question, but I really like the idea of you including more information about the products inside the box, you know, because that you want to, when you send these boxes out, I've subscribed to a few different boxes, and that's usually one of the, the best parts is learning more about what am I actually getting. You know, I don't want to just get the products inside the box. I want to learn more about where it came from, and the, all the stuff you described makes a lot of sense. I think that anybody out there that is thinking about getting into subscription boxes or already are selling them, definitely include more information, like, what is the story behind it because it makes it much more enjoyable when I, at least for me personally to open up a box and then see wow this is like you know I'm learning all about these things and there's actually a story behind this box and makes me look forward to the next one um, so cool so you mentioned that you had uh, you were taking, uh, going to grad school you said that you had co-founders that you were working that you were I guess brainstorming this idea with at Columbia University and then after grad school you went into an incubator at Google was that the next step? Yeah, yeah. There was an incubator at Google, then another incubator at uh, the Columbia Entrepreneurship Center, uh, and and then there was a first round of fundraising uh, that was uh, about uh, eight, a bit more than eighteen months ago, uh, and and then that's really when uh, we were able to uh, recruit uh, full time talents uh, and we were able to invest more in marketing and really start growing the subscription very very fast. Uh, and and since then, to give you an idea of uh, of the scale, back then uh, in summer 2015, uh, we had about uh, 500 subscribers, and we grew that to 2014, and we grew that to uh, in 18 months to more than 50,000 subscribers. So uh, we, we had a very fast growth. Uh, that was that was very interesting. Yeah, that, that's a definitely amazing growth. So when you were incubating at um, at Google and then at Columbia, were you incubating the Try the World idea or was it um, something else at that time? No, it was a Try the World idea. It was like building the first boxes, trying to figure out the uh, the fulfillment center situation, trying to figure out the, the, the first uh, growth channel and also fundraising the first round. Awesome. So how long were you at these uh, two incubators? These two incubators, I think, tried well. I was not there personally, uh, but these two incubators lasted for three months each. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an interesting idea. Not not many guests that I have on uh, have gone incubator route, but it certainly seemed to help you guys out a lot. So, how did you get into an incubator? Like, how do you find the right one for your business, your business idea, and then how do you get a, like what have you done? Like, not what have you done, but like any tips on how to get accepted into an incubator? Because it, it is a selection process, an application process. Not everybody that wants to get in will get in. Yeah, no, I think the, the, the two co-founders, uh, Ken and David, were uh, first uh, at, were at Columbia University, so it was easy for them to get into the, the Columbia Entrepreneurship Center. It is uh, very helpful and trying to be very, very active to uh, help the, the New York uh, startup environment to really uh, grow extremely fast. Uh, and, and then it's about really uh, pitching a uh, not only uh, an idea that is amazing and exciting, but that also makes a lot of sense on a, on a business sense. So it's it's also about having a very robust uh, business model. So if you want to get into an incubator, do you need to have revenue already, or how much uh, of your business needs to be have needs to be developed before uh, it makes sense to even approach an incubator? It really depends on the incubator. Uh, for the example of uh, Columbia, that I know a bit better. Uh, there is there is no need of having already uh, a revenue 
uh, they take ideas at different stages. Some of them are really, really at the very basics, and it's all about like building the website or building the interface and like launching the MVP. Uh, for some of them, and revenue already exists, and they're a bit more advanced. So it, it really depends on the incubator. Mm, makes sense. Uh, so when you are inside an incubator, for anyone that you know that's not well versed in it or has never been in an incubator, incubator space, like what like goes on there? Or you just, do you just have like an office and like you work by yourself? Are there mentors? Like what is the, I guess, benefits of being in an incubator rather than just you know working on your own? Yeah. So. You, you have different kind of resources that are given to you. Some of them are office spaces. So as you said, you're, you're usually in this incubator with like five to ten other startups. Uh, so they, they put resources, uh, they, they have resources available for you. Uh, but on top of that, there's a lot of mentoring that goes on. It's, uh, it's a lot of former entrepreneurs that uh, went through this incubator. There are also a lot of introductions to uh, people that are uh, close to the incubator. You can think about investors, obviously, but also uh, resources on the marketing side, on the technology side, uh, on the operational and logistics side. So it's really, it helps. Uh, I mean, the, it's really an incubator is really to help accelerate growth. And I think that uh, it can be very beneficial for a young startup, uh, especially for people that, are, like, for whom it's the first time. Uh, that they, they build a they build a startup. I think it's very helpful to go through an incubator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and usually when we hear the when I hear the word incubator, I think about technology incubators, people that are building uh, software apps yep. or you know platforms that are technology driven. Um, are there so are there incubators specific for e-commerce or if you have an e-commerce store, can you does it still make sense to apply to an incubator that? You know, seems because when, when you say Google, I think oh, it must be a technology incubator. Yep. But you guys are, you know, when I think of you guys, you guys are e-commerce. So yeah, absolutely. On the on the, I think it's also about the kind of culture and different coasts. On the East Coast, um, the startup community is very much around e-commerce for a lot of it. So there are incubators that uh, accept more e-commerce type of uh, startups mm-hmm. versus uh, maybe on the West Coast where it's more technology centric. Uh, so I think that may be something that is at play here, uh, but once again, it really depends on the on the incubator. Mm, very cool. And uh, for your particular case, you don't have to go into any details or anything. But are there, I guess, stipu- like what's the stipulation? Are they taking a percentage of the company if you uh, go with this incubator, or is it just you know free space and free mentorship? Like what's the I guess the trade off? Usually, there is a lot of free space and free mentorship. In the case of Colombia, they're really trying to uh, build. Uh, kind of a pool of successful startup from uh, Columbia University, especially on the business school side. Uh, so there it's really for them to build a community, a community of entrepreneurs uh, from that school, so a strong alumni network, I think, of, of entrepreneurs. Uh, then for Google, I think it's also showing the value of the Google products for uh, the startup community. They can be very helpful there. They're very scalable. So I think it's also getting business on the long run uh, for places like Google. And that makes sense. So, for with the Google, Google incubator, what uh, I guess you said that they they wanted to they use that incubator space to encourage people to use more of their products. What specific products were you using at that time that made them made your company, I guess, attractive to them? I, I don't know about then, but today we're still using most of uh, Google software uh, to uh, in our day to day life, and uh, it can be like the simple like calendar, mm-hmm. Gmail, uh, Drive. 
So this is like the uh, environment that we use on a daily basis. So from that standpoint, I think they were successful. Right, makes sense. Cool. So um, you said you spent you have spent two uh, two uh, I guess sessions and two different incubators, and then after that or during the the end of the second one, you were working on the fundraising. Uh, you said eighteen months ago. What was that? Uh, what was that experience like? I think it's it's. Uh, uh, a lot about uh, networking, meeting with a, with a lot of people, and and really convincing uh, them that you have uh, not only a viable product that can generate revenue, but also uh, a good vision on the long run on on where to take this uh, this project to the next level. Uh, and then it's it's really about finding the the right partners that uh, can also give uh, mentoring, that can give contacts, that. Uh, uh, can really contribute to the project and be a, a good fit that can help you grow. Right. So I think most of the listeners probably also don't uh, go down this fundraising route. Uh, when does it, uh, I guess, how do you determine if it makes sense to go down a fund ra- fundraising uh, ra- route versus just self-funding it yourself? Yeah, I think it depends a lot on how you're thinking about growth. I think uh, we had very high uh, growth objectives. Uh, and the only way to scale very fast was to be able to do investments that were heavy not only on the uh, product side, obviously, but also on the marketing side. Uh, and, and that justified uh, fundraising because we could have probably been a, a sustainable small business, but we, we had a high ambitions and we wanted to, to kind of scale uh, quickly or model, so then uh, it becomes kind of necessary to to go through a first mm. round of fundraising. That makes sense. Do you think that this is uh, specific to businesses that want to create like a subscription box? Like, does something about that business make it more capital intense? Um, it it makes it capital intense a little bit in the beginning, but to be honest, it's a it's an interesting model that. Uh, allows you to also get uh, recurring customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's, it can be uh, expensive to acquire customers, uh, but then you usually are able to keep them in the long run. So it, it's an interesting business model that uh, requires uh, some investments, uh, a lot on the, on the product side if uh, you, you need to source the product a long time in advance, which is our case. Uh, but it, it's again a case by case scenario, and it depends a lot on the, the the sourcing facilities that you have and and what type of product you're selling in your box. Mm-hmm. So for anyone that does want to go down a fund uh, raising route, you said that a lot of it is just a lot of networking, a lot of meetings, a lot of uh, I guess to some degrees pitching your your product and your your idea. Uh, what is I guess the very first steps if someone wants to go down that route? Is it just developing a network? Like what do you recommend someone that? maybe doesn't have a network and wants to start a business that does require them to, to fundraise? Like what are the, I guess, beginning steps for that? Yeah, for sure. No, it's, as you said, it's really beginning to, uh, to develop a network of uh, uh, people that can introduce you to uh, different angel investors. Uh, for us, for example, uh, through the, the Columbia Alumni Network, we're able to meet with a lot of people. Uh, the Columbia Entrepreneurship Center also invested in, in Try the World in the first place, so it was very helpful for us to uh, convince other angel investors to join on the seed round. Uh, but it's definitely a lot about networking, finding people that can that trust you uh, even more than your idea. Uh, 
and and that are willing to uh, to really take a bet on you on your yeah. on your, your idea. Yeah, I've heard that before. That's interesting. That that sometimes the team or the the founder matters a lot more than the product itself. Can you say more about that? Like, what is it? What are they looking for? I guess in in a person that makes it their sole focus, not sole focus, but the primary focus rather than on the business itself. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, and I, I definitely agree with you that people look more for talent than for an idea. I think that uh, even if you think about trade well, I think the the reason why we were able to to scale very fast is mostly because it's the, the talents that were in the company and that uh, executed perfectly the, the the strategy that went in place. Um, and uh, and and then what are the qualities that uh, investors are looking for? I think it's uh, it's it's good to have a, I think some previous uh, startup uh, um, experience. I think it's it really depends. I think in the New York area, the the kind of consulting financial backgrounds in the first place, I kind of uh, popular among uh, investors. Uh, given that a lot of the investors are themselves very much from the financial uh, industry. Uh, but uh, I would say it's, it's very much a case-by-case scenario. Uh, but you, you have an edge if you already built a company in the past, for sure. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I want to talk about the kind of origin for this idea. You mentioned that there was there were these trends that you guys recognized that there's a, there, the subscription uh, model was becoming more and more familiar, more and more popular by the big big brands like you mentioned, Birchbox, uh, you know, Barkbox is a really big popular one too. And you also recognize that more people were buying food online. Was there like some kind of process to recognize these trends? You know, for someone out there is that is thinking about starting a business or maybe an early stages and wants to make sure that they catch kind of like a wave of, um, I guess, rising interests or trends like you guys were able to catch. How do you recognize these things coming? Like, are you doing anything particular to, to you know, um, I guess, uh, be able to uh, see these uh, trends uh, coming? Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of market research to be done, to be honest, uh, to make sure that you're on the, the right path and you're identifying the right trend. Uh, so a lot of data analysis coming from like different places, going online on different publication. Uh, even for example, a place like uh, Chargeify, which is an app uh, that works with Shopify that we use for recurring billing, uh, is publishing a lot of very interesting articles, a lot on the subscription box model. So it's it's a lot about reading uh, all of the literature that's out there to uh, to make sure you isolate the kind of the signal versus the noise about the product that you're trying to put together. Uh, and but yeah, it's a, it's a long process to be honest to to make sure that you identify the right need. For this kind of uh, market research, are there specific websites or tools you recommend people check out or or uh, use to to do their research? Um, I mean, if you have a few, depending on how much access you have, you can do. Uh, uh, I, I on, honestly recommend uh, going on Boost, like generic websites. They do a research on Google on your product and on the market. Uh, studies that exist. If you can afford some ten thousand dollar market studies that are published by uh, famous companies, it's good. But if you can't, uh, another good way is also to talk to like leaders in the industry or influencers going to like talks, conferences about your product uh, to be able to to meet with people that are like actually uh, doing the the work in the field that uh, you are interested in. Mm, okay, that makes sense. So uh, the the tools and websites sound like they're 
really expensive for anyone that's starting out, maybe out outside of their budget, but a good way to, to I guess, a- attack this uh, qualitatively is just immerse yourself in the community, talk to the, the influencers, the people that are already making progress or working in the industry. Yeah, that makes sense because they usually will have a you know, higher level view. They have the experience already. You might as well you know, hear from them directly, the people that are already inside the industry. Cool. So um, let's talk a little bit about the growth. So you said you went from 500 to 50,000 subscribers. What was that, like over a year? It was, uh, yeah, pretty much over like a bit more than a year, like 15 months. Wow, that's amazing. What do you guys, I guess, credit the, the growth of that to? Uh, I think it was both a very good market fit. Uh, I think we created a product that was really uh, popular and uh, really kind of almost viral. People were sharing it. Uh, almost naturally, but we also had a very efficient uh, paid marketing strategy uh, where we relied a lot on on uh, digital marketing to uh, to kind of fuel the growth. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about the the marketing strategy. So um, is the marketing, I'm not sure how much experience you have outside of the subscription box service, but do you find that the marketing is going to be different when you are uh, you know, predominantly selling a subscription uh, box versus a more you know, traditional e-commerce store? I think that the, the advantage that you have when you're selling a subscription box is a longer average lifetime value mm. uh, because of the inherent nature of the subscription <laughs> renewal. Uh, so you would have uh, more retention compared to like an e-commerce, uh, generic e-commerce, where more people will come for just one or two buys. So usually that allows you to have a higher cost per acquisition. So a higher cost per acquisition gives you more room for uh, testing and scaling. So I think that the subscription box model has this advantage. Uh, now, uh, I think the, the places to recruit subscribers are usually more depending on the type of product that you're selling. So, for example, for us, uh, Google AdWords is not a big source of uh, traffic and of uh, revenue because there is not so much intent for a product like Try the World. Nobody's unfortunately yet looking for a mm. uh, subscription box with gourmet food from around the world. Uh, so, it's more on places such as uh, Facebook or Pinterest that we're able to get people excited about our product with uh, very nice visual and interesting offers. Awesome. Yeah, I think that makes sense that you what you're saying about uh, subscription services because there's that repeat purchase, the lifetime value of the customer is higher, which means that you can invest more and also test more with the, the kind of ads that you're running. Uh, so how were you able to identify the lifetime value before you started uh, investing in uh, these PPC campaigns or uh, how much did you know? You How did you know how much you had to to, I guess, play with to acquire a customer? That's an excellent question, and it's very difficult for a subscription box model to model the lifetime value of your customers. You have to make pretty strong assumptions, to be honest, uh, especially in the beginning. Uh, but we also launched different plans that allowed us to kind of uh, get a better preview of how long people would stay. So we launched uh, about like uh, again, about 15 to 18 months ago, we launched plans that were uh, some annual and annual. So here, uh, thanks to this plan, we have more security uh, in terms of uh, in terms of revenue on the long run and in terms of lifetime value, and that represented a, a big amount of the new subscribers that came in. So that was actually a very helpful move. 
I, I like that. I want to talk about this more. I, I feel like it's a discussion, again, really popular in the, the software kind of SaaS world of uh, subscription services where it's annual versus monthly. So can you talk a little bit more about this, like what the, the benefits are with offering also an annual, I guess, plan? Because they basically have to pay everything up front. Is that correct? Exactly. That's, that's absolutely correct. But because you have more uh, security on how long this person is going to stay, you're also able to giving them better value. So usually what every uh, SaaS or even subscription box does is if you subscribe for a year instead of uh, a month, if you commit for a year instead of a month, we'll give you a certain amount of discounts. So that those discounts can go from like 15% to 30-40%. Uh, so this is actually very good value both for the customer and for the business. So it's really clearly a win-win situation. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. But can you say a little bit more about um, why it benefits the the customer as well? Because you know, I think what you're getting at is that now you have the kind of cash up front that you can now reinvest into the the business a little bit sooner, which you know obviously will benefit the customer as well. Is that what you're getting at, or like can you say more about why it benefits the customer? You know, for anyone out there. Well, on the customer side, let's take the example of Try the World. If you subscribe uh, for the the monthly plan, you pay thirty nine dollars per month. Uh, per box, and if you subscribe annually, you would pay twenty nine dollars per box. So you're saving ten dollars. You're selling twenty five percent on every box you receive. So you're getting amazing value out of this. Um, but and on the business side, we're getting uh, more revenue up front. So it gives us more possibilities to invest and and continue both uh, to invest both on the product side and to invest on the on the marketing side to continue acquiring new subscribers. Mm-hmm. And do you sell these annual plans right off the bat? You know, because I'm looking at it now. It looks like if I, uh, like you're saying, it's twenty nine dollars per box if I uh, subscribe for twelve months, or thirty nine per box if I just subscribe monthly. You also have a um, six month plan as well. So, do these um, people do people come in and say, "Let me just buy an annual plan right off the bat," or do you usually have to upsell them after they've been on the monthly plan for a while? That's a, that's a very good question. And uh, so we've we've uh, we have a lot of people with. Between thirty and forty percent that subscribe for long-term subscription, so more than a than a one box at a time, uh, depending on the months, and and then we also offer them to uh, uh, upgrade uh, once they've been subscribers for a while, and uh, we kind of uh, make it so that they're getting refunded for the extra that they may have paid in the past. So it's really good value to upgrade as well. That's awesome. I think that at least for as a customer, that makes sense to me because I, I might not commit to you know paying over I guess it's almost over three hundred dollars right off the bat. But if I got to try a product out for a while and really understand the value of it, then I might be much more likely to say, "Let me save some money. Let me subscribe to annual plan because I plan on being on it for a while anyway." That makes a lot of sense. Cool. So um, let's talk about the other, I guess, the, the strategies itself with PPC. You said, um, you know, Google Ad AdWords uh, does, doesn't work out too well because no, not many people are searching for, uh, you know, try the world subscription boxes. Uh, but you said Facebook and Pinterest worked for you. Were you doing ads through there, or is it just organic kind of posting and on social media, or were you buying ads through Facebook and, and Pinterest? Yeah, yeah, no, no, thank you for, for asking this. So we, we do a lot of, uh, we do paid campaigns as well as, obviously we have a, a strong uh, following, we have about 150,000 uh, followers on Facebook only, uh, so we have a strong following, but we're also doing uh, paid uh, paid media on on Facebook especially, uh, and there we've, we've been developing strategies, uh, working in conjunction with Facebook uh, for more than 18 months, and that's kind of 
the, the, our biggest driver uh, of growth historically. Uh, and, and there, uh, we've, we've developed a lot of, of strategies on different content and different audiences we're able to target because uh, the kind of strength and, and power of Facebook, the, the really competitive advantage is the quality of the targeting. Uh, and there, there are many strategies that are uh, helpful for different businesses. Yeah, let, let's talk about that. So let's say someone wants to launch a marketing campaign on, on Facebook, and maybe they are also interested in selling subscription service. Uh, what do these ads that you guys create look like, and how do you determine who to target with these ads? Yeah, so basically we have, we have two main types of campaigns. So some that uh, use lookalike audiences, as you mentioned, and some that don't. Uh, so if we first look at lookalike audiences, before we go into more detail, the definition of this is basically you are able on Facebook to upload uh, a list of email addresses. So let's say you have 10,000 customers, you upload your 10,000 customers onto Facebook through, with their email addresses, and Facebook is going to be able to match them with Facebook accounts for like two-thirds of them. And then with these two-thirds uh, of accounts based on your customers, uh, they're going to be able to create a demo, uh, an audience of 2 million to 20 million people uh, that you will be able to target and that will be the closest people to your subscribers, to the people that you've uploaded the email addresses of. Uh, so this is a very powerful tool where basically Facebook does the job with regard to finding the best people, the people that are most likely to buy your product. Uh, so this is something that is uh, very powerful, very scalable, uh, then, as I was saying, you have different sizes of lookalikes, so you can go for what is called a 1%. So you can do a targeting of 1% uh, lookalike that's going to be very close to your subscribers, so really, really high-quality leads. Uh, so on these people, you can be very aggressive. Uh, you can have an objective of only having them to click to your site, and then your site is supposed to be able to convert them. Versus on a larger audience of like 10%, which will be between 20 and 25 million people if you target the US. And there you need to be probably a bit more conservative in the type of uh, bidding and budgeting that you do. Uh, and that's where usually it's recommended to, uh, to have an objective that is not clicked to the site, but uh, uh, conversions on the site. So Facebook advertising offers different type of objectives uh, that will allow you to scale at different levels. And the bigger the audience, the more you should uh, go towards a, a conversion uh, optimized uh, type of campaign. Yeah, that makes sense that if the, the, the audience is larger, you might not have everybody that's your target customer, so you want to be more conservative about the when you pay, only pay when, they, when you have a conversion or whatever the objective is. So what, why, why not also apply that to the smaller audience that is targeted? Like what, are, what are the downsides of having a um, only paying per conversion for something that's smaller? Yeah, absolutely. It's the scale, basically is that if you pay per conversion on a smaller audience, you will not be able to show your ads to as many people as uh, if you're doing a CPC campaign. So it's basically, if you have uh, a small gross objective, you should almost always do uh, targeting towards uh, conversion. But if you want to scale faster uh, and have more spending, uh, sometimes you have to move towards uh, less conservative uh, bidding and bidding on clicks. I see, because Facebook will, the algorithm will optimize for, uh, for conversions, which means that if you have a smaller audience and you're optim if you're targeting or if you want to only pay for conversions, they're going to diminish that kind of uh, pool of 
uh, customer or not customers, audience to to uh, show your ads to. Cool. Um, also, so, so let's talk a little about the um, the Pinterest strategy. Then, what is the strategy over there? Yeah, so Pinterest uh, launched uh, an advertising platform about uh, almost a year ago now. Uh, we were in beta in the first place, and basically, this is this is a very new platform uh, that has a, a very interesting demographic. Uh, a lot of women looking for um, travel, food, fashion, uh, creating boards. Uh, so there is a lot of saved pins that uh, people keep. So it's like they keep this product in mind for the future. So it's a very different uh, platform, but also very interesting for us because of the demographic. And and there it's it's pretty much the same the same story as Facebook. Even though the the inventory is much simpler. For example, you don't have video, you don't have many different formats. is is basically pins uh, that will be sponsored pins. And and over there you choose uh, both the the image and the uh, and the text. Uh, what is what is very popular over there. If uh, if you want to get some shareability, is doing a content-heavy uh, uh, post. So uh, let's say for tradable, it would be like developing a recipe, a little how it work uh, type of, of pin that is linked to a to a longer article. So those are very popular. But you can also work on the more offer side, where uh, you would give an offer on uh, the ad directly. I see. So you have two, it looks like two uh, strategies. One is yep. more like content marketing based where you say, hey, there's a recipe for, uh, you know, whatever it is. And then they click on it, brings them to your site, which then has the, the recipe. And then that's when they get exposed to your brand. The other way is to actually try to get them to click to like a, a product page or like a category page. Like where are you driving them to with the, um, the more, I guess, uh, aggressive approach to, to uh, advertising on Pinterest? Yeah, absolutely. So usually we have uh, uh, some uh, landing pages that we develop specifically for different platforms and for different offers. Uh, so one of our popular offers is to get a, a when you subscribe, you're able to get a free uh, Paris box. Historically, it was a Paris box uh, with with your initial box. So you get two boxes the first month. So that was a, a very popular offer that we ran for a long time. Uh, and we would send, for example, we would have this offer on, on Pinterest. They would say, like, if you subscribe today, you can get a free box. And then it would uh, lead them to, uh, to our uh, landing page uh, where you would have a, a few more call to action and a checkout. Awesome. So do you think Pinterest makes sense for every industry? Like, can it work for outside of food, outside of fashion? Can you also make this work even if you're not in those industries? What do you think? That's a great question. I think that uh, given the demographic and the, the parameters of the platform, you would find most success with product-to-consumer goods uh, that, are, uh, that people can buy, but it can also be like even electronics, all of these things. I think if uh, you have a headset to sell, I think it can work out well, but uh, if you have a, a SaaS, for example, I think it would be much more complicated to start there. Okay, so basically, if you have a product that you're selling directly to consumers, um, it works well. If you're assigned to businesses, you know, Pinterest probably doesn't work as well. Um, cool. So let's talk more a little bit about the the, the subscription service. So I think one big, um, and I want to get into analytics in a second, but I think one of the big data points you might look at or you probably look at is uh, related to churn. So can you tell, uh, maybe explain to the audience, like you know, what is churn and and yeah, we'll start there. So basically, uh, churn is, uh, on a look at it on a monthly basis, is the amount of people that cancel their subscription, which is an extremely important variable to look at because you spend a lot of time and money 
to acquire someone to join your subscription. Uh, so you want them to be happy and to stay with you as long as possible. So uh, it's very important to measure uh, the churn and the actions that you can take to uh, make basically the, the customer happier every time you send him a box, in our case, so that uh, we have less and less churn uh, in the long run. Oh yeah, can you say more about that? You know, I think that that's probably the biggest uh, concern is that you know you, you launch a subscription service and then the the biggest fear is that someone buys it for one month and all of a sudden cancels. Like, what do you do? And they include in the box or like, what do you do for the customer to make them say, "Let me stick around for another month"? Yeah, for sure. So first, we're developing more and more content to make sure they have uh, the possibility to really enjoy each and every product that they're receiving in the box. Give you an idea. We developed a series of videos to uh, show them like different recipes that are made directly by the chef in front of them. So, uh, kind of an extension of, of the experience on the online, not only with with the culture guide that we include in the box. So we're trying to always provide more content, always provide more value, uh, and we also have a, a big focus on uh, listening to our customers. So there, it's like. After each box that uh, you receive, we'll send you a survey to so that you all of our subscribers can tell us like which are the product that they really love and uh, what would they need in the next box to make them even happier, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's always um, so being very uh, attentive to uh, to what the customer is saying and how the customer is feeling about the product. Uh, and finally, uh, I would say that there are small initiatives that uh, matter a lot to, uh, to the customers. So it's, it's uh, sending them a, a postcard once in a while. It's uh, uh, sending them a special offer that is only for subscribers. We recently launched a program where uh, every, for every country that we do, we actually send uh, two of our, uh, our couple of subscribers uh, to the country so that they can actually experience the cuisine uh, over there by themselves. So it's it's always trying to innovate and, and make our community happier and happier. Yeah, I like that. And I think that this is a really important point. You know, when you focus on your products and you focus on creating really great products, that does, you know, go a certain distance to keeping people around. But the, the subscription services that I'm a part of, you know, whether they are products like yours or um, software that I use, what I really, what really, uh, gets me to stick around is that they spend a lot of time after I get my box or my subscription, uh, not necessarily teasing me, but like uh, and helping me build anticipation for what's coming next. And I think that that's what keeps people coming back over and over again is that they think, oh man, I can't wait for what's coming next month because not only it's great what I have now, but then maybe the content you guys are putting out is encouraging me to stick around to get that next box. So I think that's an important point. Now, don't just work on the products, but then also work on um, uh, almost like building anticipation for, for the next box with your with your customers. Um, so do you, do you find that the... the I have a, a question from one of the listeners in my, in my Facebook group where they are asking, they, they just launched a subscription box as well and her numbers are all over the place you know 10 to 10 to 40 percent churn depending on you know which month does this kind of stuff stabilize over time was it like this for you guys early on too where things were jumping all over the place and then over time you're able to bring that down like what was the experience early on for you yeah definitely i mean you have you have two elements both uh when when you like scale and uh, you have more both like more months or more historical data uh but you also have uh, more statistical significant cohorts. So you have more people in each of the cohorts because if you have 10 people that subscribed last month and 15 this month and you're looking at churn, it's, 
it's not really statistically significant, so it's very, very hard to um, to use this as a as a source of data to uh, to define churn or uh, or even acquisition and cost per acquisition. Mm, makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's talk about the the procurement process. You know, I think one of the challenges with a subscription box service, especially if you are you know starting off by yourself or you have a very small team, is that you're not just creating one product and then focusing all your attention on the marketing. You're fo- creating a product, focusing on the marketing, and then next month you got to basically put out new products again. So what is the process like? How do you make sure that you're able to stay on top of the Basically, you no know, new six to six or so products that you had to put out every month. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a tremendous amount of work, to be honest. And uh, the the product team at Try the World is is more than almost fifteen people now uh, that literally travel around the world and uh, work on on sourcing the best product. What an awesome job! <laughs> it's a pretty cool job. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and 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 so it's 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 a lot of work, uh, especially that we basically integrated all the supply chain. So now we are we have the luxury to actually work directly with with all the producers in in the different countries we we feature in our boxes, uh, and then we we do all the work uh, logistic wise to bring this country to bring this product to uh, to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's true that uh, when we started, we we. Obviously, and to work in more uh, scalable manner, so we're working in the first place with importers in the U.S. Uh, so basically, people that uh, add the inventory of uh, different products uh, from uh, different countries. Uh, then we worked on uh, with exporters from different countries, and then uh, finally we were able to work directly with uh, with the producers. But obviously, uh, if you're like have just one person working on it, they can't travel around the world. Mm-hmm. Every day, like source different products, so it's it's also uh, production is something that uh, needs to be scalable as well. Awesome. So, do you guys plan the, these out for many months ahead of time? Like, if someone is starting out, maybe not the scale that you guys are at yet. How much prep do you think that they need to have before they, uh, you know, announce, "Hey, I'm starting a subscription service." I'd imagine that'd be a bad idea to say that to launch one and only have one month prepared. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, we, we at our stage we source we source six to eight months in advance, uh, so we have a, a very long uh, time before uh, we, we from the moment we start the process and the moment we actually deliver the boxes. Uh, but but you definitely need to plan in advance. And we we recently launched a, a new product which is called the Snack Box by Try the World. Uh, and that was kind of a new experience of, of restarting everything. So uh, there we we also um, obviously we had all the experience that we've accumulated, but still uh, you need to kind of rebuild new processes that are slightly different. And uh, it's definitely been a rush to be able to uh, to to produce all the, the those new items uh, on a monthly basis uh, with, with customers that started about two months ago. Mm, awesome. Um, so when you are uh, procuring these, uh, or not procuring, but when you're putting together these packages when you're early on, did you have these custom-made packaging at the time? Like how? I think that's a big question too, is like actually the actual packaging for a subscription box. So can you give us a little more details on you know, how you guys came up with your packaging? Like what did you, who did you work with? Not who did you work with, but how did you work on creating a package for a subscription box? Yeah, for sure. So there, uh, we worked with uh, with a designer that was in house that uh, made all the design, and then uh, we we tried to to get samples. We found a few partners through again through the the network of uh, 
of people we already knew in the in the space, uh, and that allowed us to receive like the first prototypes. And then it's about uh, what we do is work with a with a fulfillment center that uh, uh, handles. So we work with a lot of third parties. So uh, for both the production of the non-edible items, so the box, the the, the print papers inside, but uh, also we worked with a fulfillment center that helps us that helped us uh, scale a lot. That handles all the, the receiving the products, stocking, uh, then kitting the boxes, so putting the boxes together, and then shipping. So it's also figuring out the right partners that can uh, help you with uh, small scale in the beginning, but then helping you ramp up uh, quickly. Cool. Um, so do you, do you think that that's necessary to start off, or do you think uh, I'm starting off with like a non-branded box? Everybody started. We started with a white box. Uh, for Valentine's Day in, uh, in the very first day in 2013 um, and, and that was non-branded that was a very small scale kitted in the at Columbia uh, so everybody should start with something like this which is a, a prototype that is um, unfortunately usually non-branded still try to use a sticker of the brand Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I know you were mentioning before we got on the call that uh, one of the things that you focus on is analytics. And I think is super important. I think in uh, in a business like yours because there's so many moving pieces. Are there specific tools or apps that you guys rely on to keep track of all the data? Uh, yeah, I mean we have we have a couple tools that we use. Uh, uh, obviously, there are tools that are free, like Google Analytics. I recommend everyone who sets a, uh, an e-commerce to to use that. Uh, then on the on the more on the marketing side, so uh, really driving traffic to the site, we, we work with uh, uh, all the platforms we have. So for example, uh, Facebook Ads Manager has a, a lot of data available uh, that we monitor, um, and we have two data analysts in house. So we have a lot of uh, data uh, that is uh, that is uh, coming in, and a lot of data that is being analyzed on a daily basis. Uh, but then we have uh, a couple of other tools. So we use uh, a company that uh, that we really like that is called Simon Data uh, that really help us uh, scale on our retention marketing. So it's basically working on, on reducing churn uh, all the time. Uh, and and then uh, you have some, some more uh, refined uh, attribution models that you can use, but that's, that's usually for more uh, advanced purposes. Mm-hmm. And what are the, I guess, most important data points that you pay attention to on a day-to-day basis? If you're open up, like let's say Google Analytics, uh, what do you what do you recommend people pay attention to when they when they open that up? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. So uh, for us, on a, on a, I would say, I would start first with kind of the, the business objective. I think that the biggest one is uh, acquisition and churn on a daily basis. So how many people are you uh, getting to subscribe, and how many people are you losing? Uh, and uh, then another very important one is is cost per acquisition on a daily basis to make sure that you can afford the the, the marketing initiatives that you're running right now. Um, and and then on a more um, day-to-day online and Google Analytics uh, through Google Analytics, the, the KPI that is very that are very important is both traffic that is coming to your site. Uh, so, how many people are you bringing on a on a daily basis or on a monthly basis, and uh, the conversion rate? How many of these people that you're bringing to the site you're able to convert into uh, uh, sales? Uh, and for us, it's uh, subscribers. Awesome. And are there um, Shopify related apps, or what what are you using to to um, handle the subscriptions? I know you mentioned Chargeify earlier on uh, to handle these recurring charges. Are there any other uh, platforms that you rely on to help manage this entire process? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, we have, we have Stripe, like many businesses, we have uh, Chargeify, and then we've, uh, and that is an app of, uh, of Shopify, uh, and, and then we have, a, we have a custom database on, on, on top of that. Awesome. So there's no like um, subscription service specific uh, app that you need to, to start a business like this? Uh, no, I think it's, you, you usually need something for a recurring billing, uh, for which we use Chargeify. There are a few mm-hmm. competitors, uh, and, and then we just work with Shopify. Awesome. So what's, uh, what's the story for the, for the remainder of this year? What are some goals that you guys want to uh, hit uh, for 2016? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have, we have some pretty, uh, we've just launched a new product, as I, as I mentioned, uh, that, was, that was pretty awesome. Uh, we launched so the, the snack box. It's uh, five snacks uh, from five different countries every month. It's, uh, it's pretty much half the price of the, the signature box. So it's really exciting, really uh, cool new product with a, with a new branding. So we're hoping to, to grow this, this new uh, uh, subscription fast as well. Uh, then we have a, a lot of ambition on, on developing the, the e-commerce. So uh, with every product that you receive, either in your snack box or in your signature box, you're able to repurchase the product uh, on, on the, the e-commerce uh, that we have on our site as well. Like a so one-off uh, basis? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you really, really like those cookies from, uh, from Le Mer Poulard from France, you can purchase them. You can purchase as many as you want on the e-commerce. Uh, so that's that's super exciting for us, and uh, continuing to grow that because that's also how we we help the the brands and the partners that we work with uh, that follow us in this adventure, and that's how we also help them to to grow their their brand in the U.S. So it's it's really super important, and then it's continuing to develop uh, amazing content that uh, both our subscribers and the people interested in in international uh, growing international food in general can uh, can enjoy. Awesome. So thanks so much, Vincent. So trytheworld.com is the website. Anywhere else you recommend our listeners go and check out if they want to follow along with, uh, with what you guys are up to? Yeah, I mean, I, I recommend going on the site. We change the, the country every month. Uh, you can definitely follow us on, on Facebook, on Instagram, and also we have a pretty cool Snapchat uh, that is handled by our amazing uh, social media manager, Diego. So I recommend following that as well uh, and reading some article on the, the amazing magazine that we have. Awesome. Thanks so much, Vincent. Thank you, Felix. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com for a free 14-day trial.